Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. A podcast one production. Hey, you're listening to Crappy to Happy. I'm your host, Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher, and author of the Crappy to Happy books. In this show, we talk about all the things that might be making you feel crappy and give you the tools and tips to help you overcome them. In each episode, I bring you conversations with interesting, inspiring, and intelligent people who are experts in their field. And my hope is that you take something from these conversations that helps you feel a little bit less crappy and more happy. Today, I'm talking to Madonna King, who is a journalist and an author who has gifted us with such gems as Being 14, which is on my bedside table at the moment, as well as Fathers and Daughters. And Madonna has just released a brand new book called Ten Ager, which focuses on the specific challenges faced by 10-year-old girls. Of course, as parents, we want to know how we can best support our girls to navigate the world of social media, how to manage their changing moods, forge quality friendships, cultivate resilience and grow into strong and free-spirited and confident young women. So Madonna has pulled together lots of experts and she's got inside the heads of these 10-year-old girls to help us to do just that. Here's my conversation with Madonna. You previously wrote a book, Being 14, which I'm just going to side note, I have just recently purchased because my daughter is now 14. It's been on my radar for a couple of years. But most recently, you are now releasing a book called Tenager. Mm-hmm. So who are these tenagers and why was it important for you that we target this age group now? So I wrote Being 14 and lots of mums contacted me after that saying, look, could my daughter be very advanced because I'm getting the eye rolls earlier than 14 or this is happening or that's happening. Uh, you know, could it be that, you know, a 10-year-old now is similar to a 14-year-old even four or five years ago? And so I set about to explore that question and I asked uh, 500 10-year-olds 1,600 mums, 100 year five teachers, plus a whole lot of school principals and teen psychologists and parenting experts. But my aim was to get inside the girls' heads and find out what really worried them and then take that to the experts. Before we jump into that, you also flagged in the book this concept of the alpha generation, which I hadn't heard before. So this ties in with these girls turning 10 now, right? So the alpha generation is the generation who was born from 2010 onwards. Yes. So, you know, we had Gen X, Y, Z, and now we've got Generation Alpha. We're starting the alphabet again. And so what are the unique challenges that have been faced by these kids or these girls turning 10 now, these alphas? So many of them. I think in large part, and this sounds, you've heard it before, but you know, that smartphone and what it does or present, huge opportunities on one hand, huge challenges on the other. And so some people would say, look, I had trouble at friendship at 10. I couldn't see my own potential at 10. I had body image issues at 10. I think things are more difficult now because at 10, 
we could turn off. At 10, we could read stuff but not necessarily understand it. At 10, we might have even picked up a Dolly magazine, whereas now celebrities that our 10-year-olds may follow are across platforms. They're in Dolly and Vogue. They're on this website and this Instagram site. And so there's no kind of censorship of that. I think as a result of that, Cass, our girls are growing up so much older, younger, but they're not necessarily understanding what they see and hear. They see a photo and they think it's true. They don't necessarily know it's been doctored or they see a picture of a 10-year-old somewhere else and they think, look, I'm not that pretty, I'm not that tall, my hair's not like that, there's something wrong with me. And we did not have to deal with that. Definitely not, not to the same degree. I really appreciate what you just said there about how they they have access to so much information, but they don't necessarily have the cognitive skills to determine what's real and what's not. Yeah. I mean, I get that even with my teenage daughter, that she'll come and tell me all about the amazing, this amazing product that's going to solve all of her problems. And because she's seen it on an Instagram uh, yeah. ad or a TikTok or something. I mean, even little things like it's not just the, how someone looks on Instagram or Selena Gomez can have a picture of her new bag and it gets 4.1 million likes. It's something like, you know, in stories about friendship, on the screen, on movies, on what they're seeing on YouTube, there's usually a main person and a sidekick. That works well in storytelling, but not necessarily in the playground. And so it's their ability to be able to decode those messages and say, that's photoshopped, that's right, that's not. You know, a model who appears on the front page of a a magazine, her face, she may be genetically blessed, but there may be 40 changes made to her appearance before she appears on the front page. It is hard for a girl to understand that. And what shocked me a little bit is how harsh they are in judgment of themselves. But it's it's understandable when they can see their friend being harsh in judgment on themselves too. So you're saying that they're exposed to this collective sort of self-criticism? Yes. I think at that age at 10, you go from mum and dad to your whole world, your siblings, your family, to being outward looking. And the two big factors there are your friends and maybe your teachers. And so all of a sudden you see there's different rules in different households, different mums and dads do it differently. And you're looking at and thinking, what do I want to be like? Do I want to be like my mum? Do I want to be like my friend Sophie's mum? Do I want to be like that cool person? Do I want to be like this person on Instagram? Do I want to talk like this? Do I want to wear this? And at that age is the first time really that you can see the impact of them going from inward looking to outward looking. And there's so many differences, you know, whether they live in rural Australia or city Australia. Puberty happens over years at that period. There's all these invisible stages going on from the age of five and six. So when you're 10, some kids said to me, they described their builder bear to me. Other girls said to me, am I writing a chapter on what happens if a boy likes you and you want to like him back? So with that difference in the playground and your child may be that person or that person, you can see how it creates all sorts of dramas. The iPhone came out in 2007, right? So these kids yeah. literally are the, f- are the first ones who were practically born with an iPhone. 
in their hands. Yeah, one principal said to me, they remember standing up on parade and seeing all these um, mums come in with children's in, in prams and the iPad and the iPhone was the pacifier. Yeah, wow. So it was, the, and so this is that generation where they've used them in the pram, they know how to work it, they've understood colour from day dot. And their world is really different from ours, but it's also really different from their big sisters, given that. And I know that you said in the book, I don't know if it was your quote or somebody else's, that, you know, 10 is the new 13 because of the rate, the acceleration of this change. Absolutely. The the acceleration of the change, the content they have access to, the fact that during COVID, lots of parents gifted their child, their 10-year-old, a smartphone to keep in contact with their friends, but also their expectations. You know, now we're talking to 10-year-olds about what you want to do with your life or you need to go to university and you need this ATAR and you need... And, and I spoke to lots of psychologists and psychiatrists who, who one of them called this a burden and they said, you know, the level of anxiety in our 10-year-old girls is huge, partly because of parental expectation, maybe a touch of teacher expectation, but the girls' expectation. So they're looking around their class, let's say even their group of four or five friends, and if their marks are lower than their friends, they're starting to think, I'm not as smart as my friends, I'm not as good at maths or science, when at 10, we have no idea of their capability. But a consequence of that, and I found this the most heartbreaking thing, I think, is our 10-year-olds are putting a ceiling on their own potential. They're deciding at 10... I'm not going to be a maths girl or a science girl. I might as well give up netball now because I'm not going to make the A team. Whereas I think once upon a time, we were only getting into it then and there was no harm in being the C netball team. Just building on that influence of the smartphone and social media and all of that, Did anything come out, Madonna, in terms of the impact on our communication skills? That's something that interests me, that ability to -to face-to-face talk to people. What a clever question. Absolutely, in two ways. One is my belief is that our 10-year-olds, even our 14-year-olds, don't actually have the socialisation skills that are required for friendship. So they described friendship a bit like a hot chocolate, you know, fast and delicious. You know, whereas we know, one principal said to me, I met my best friend on the first day of university. We knew that it took ages. It wasn't something that happened at little lunch or morning tea. Then if someone was mean to us, our girls don't understand about forgiveness, about whether the friendship is bigger than the misdemeanour. I think, you know, this friendship idea of groups of three is vexed at that age. Yeah, at any age. At any age. All those socialisation schools are a result of the smartphone, but there is an added thing, and that is after COVID. And think of how long schools were closed in Victoria, for example. Principal after principal told me that post-COVID, these girls came back to school and they had no idea how to talk to each other. Really? They had done school online. They'd talked online to their friends. And so that ability for me to look at you and say, Cass, how are you, is something that they had just then lost. And I think that's kind of one of the impacts of COVID that we haven't seen play out yet. And I know also my daughter, the school that she goes to, they were very good with setting up Zoom lessons. 
and very structured so that there was no real gap in terms of timetabling. It was much like school, but we did it at home. But the reluctance to turn on their camera, even though they see each other face to face at school, not wanting to be seen on the Zoom, it was like an anxiety. Well, one, one uh, educator said to me, some declined because they didn't like the way they looked. Now, on any judgment, that's sad. You know, people say, oh, well, I remember this when I was 10. I don't remember at 10 being so worried about what I looked like that I didn't want to say hello to someone. And I think the fact that that's happening at 10 and by 14 and 15, Mm. that is really then ingrained, isn't it? Mm. Then you had other options where girls were wearing makeup and getting dressed up and straightening their hair because they were on Zoom. I think both of those things are an underlying issue, aren't they, in terms of a girl's confidence and her ability to perhaps have the self-esteem and the confidence to be able to put herself forward. Because in COVID, I mean, I don't think there was any unifying theme, but shy girls actually did a little bit better. Girls in the middle of the class academically went up a little bit. Some girls without an audience actually really struggled. And some, yeah, and I think, you know, girls on the spectrum actually really blossomed in many cases without the noise of school. I think it was really interesting that, as a scientific experiment, as hard as it was, it's taught us the values of individual teaching and learning and all of that as well. I know some kids whose parents decided after COVID to switch permanently to distance ed because their kids did so much better out of the school environment. Yeah, I I think this makes it really hard for schools. You know, I have two children and they're earning an income now tutoring little kids because parents had to look at their little kids' work and some are saying, well, hold on, my child should know what a pyramid is. I'm getting her tutored and they're going to high school students. And I think teachers, I've spoken to so many teachers in a school this morning where, where they're struggling because as parents, we've all become an expert And we're all saying, you know, I think, you know, uh, little Samantha needs more work here, do you mind? And I think that's going to make it pretty hard for some schools, given the inequity in schools too. You know, Cass, you just gave me your example of the school and how good that was. I know another school where two teachers photocopied the whole curriculum at Officeworks, got in their car, divided up the class and went and delivered it to mailboxes. So that's pretty tough on those kids, isn't it? it? And it really did. That's a whole other conversation, isn't it, about the inequities that were revealed, that were highlighted as yeah. a result of COVID. The point that you make, though, is it's such a challenging time in their development anyway in terms of that their bodies are changing and they get so self-conscious. And then to, I, I think that's with the thing with the Zoom camera. We go to school, we go to work, but we're not looking at ourselves in a mirror all day, are we? But it was just that having to look at themselves on the screen was the issue. And, you know, and because it can be captured and, you know, and we know in the world of selfies everything's got to be perfect. We don't keep those photos where we've got red eyes or we don't look our best. And I think all that fed into it. Madonna, you mentioned that the process of puberty happens long before the first period. And and I read in the book, you know, it's up to six years before the first period, girls can be going through puberty. So what are the issues that can be going on? Like what's happening under the bonnet that we are not necessarily seeing, but is really affecting our kids that we should be aware of? Did you know that? Did you know about those injuries? No. Well, Well, I knew that 
I guess I knew my own daughter was getting a bit moody and she was having stomach pains. Like, and I thought, oh, this sounds like periods coming. But I, up to six years, I mean, that puts them at what? In year Seven-year-olds, yeah, or even less. I I didn't know this, and it's Professor George Patton, his work, and he's done it over 10 years. It's phenomenal research. And what one quote he gave me really showed this to me. He said, if you want an ash party and you put all the effort, a tennis racket, all the effort into a child of three years old, you're not going to get an ash party. But at seven or eight, if you do exactly the same thing, you just might. And his argument is that's when girls are turning on. So everything in their mind, in their body, they're able to learn quicker, they understand things. This is the, he says it's a massive age where you can change the trajectory of girls. So he says most girls who are seeing a mental health service at 15 or 16 had the problem since they were seven or eight. That's when it started. So we're not actually intervening early. We're leaving it. We've missed the boat. And he said, we put all our research into infants and toddlers where we should have been doing it with these early teenagers. So everything from heart health to obesity to mental health to um, how they become the person they are. So in that reorientation away from their family, will they be a naughty girl or not? Will they work hard academically or not? What do they think of their body? Is it is it a true reflection of, of what they look like or not? And he said this invisible stage, which starts five or six early years earlier than menstruation, is when all that is happening, in his words, under the bonnet. And teachers and parents need to be more aware of that. And he said t- teachers often can put their finger on something that happens in year three or four, but they don't know what it is. But girls start to change a little bit, act up a little bit, do different things. This is what it is. And and then a couple of years later, we see the, a little bit of a rise perhaps in anxiety or attitude, maybe slamming the door or not wanting to talk to us, wanting more privacy. That too is part of that journey towards menstruation. So is the takeaway that we, what what is that, what do we need to be watching for, I guess? What do we need to be doing? Yeah. I think if we could tell every parent to stop thinking about periods and to think about when their daughter may be embarking on that journey, if we can engage dads so they talk about it openly and it's not this thing about don't tell dad. And perhaps even if we can have sex education earlier, so girls understand, they don't think they're freaks. They know they're perfectly normal, beautiful, developing, gorgeous girls. Then I think information is knowledge. And the more we can have people access that information and understand it, I think our girls would benefit, Cass. You mentioned also earlier this disparity between the rate of development and cognitively, but you know, physically, socially, emotionally, their development, this gap that opens up across a group of friends at around that age, 10 or 11. I was reflecting that my daughter actually, because we moved from the city to the coast when she was in year four, she spent the last three years of her primary school in a local public school, which had multi-age classrooms. And I probably didn't appreciate at the time. I mean, I really liked it, but I didn't appreciate 
just what a blessing that was because it gave them this opportunity to gravitate to their level. They were in a class where of year four, five and six, for example, or year five and six or four and five or whatever, for that reason that they could find their level. Is there an argument for for that? I mean, that's a that school's sort of based on the Montessori approach, I think, but it's a public school. But is that something we should be considering? I think there's a for and against. I think that's absolutely true. And people, when we're, we don't judge our friends now on their age. We have tennis friends and work friends and school friends. And we don't say, oh, you're 45, sorry, you're two years younger than me. <laughs> we, we actually do it, you know. And back then, because they're putting that years, they're kind of stuck in that. And you see a difference in ballet or in sport when they're not in exactly the same age. So it's under 14 and they might be 12, 13 or 14. And so for those reasons, I absolutely agree with you. People who are opposed to that use the argument of, for example, um, homerooms at schools that have years from years 12 down to year eight, for example, is terrific for boys and girls developing big brothers and big sister role models and the like. But there's other issues too when someone in grade 11 is having trouble with her boyfriend or doesn't know what dress to wear to a formal and they're talking in front of 10 and 11-year-olds right. when watch their, what they're watching on their phone is something that an 11-year-old doesn't quite understand. And so I can see that there's a kind of a for and against to it. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that really until you, I read in the book about, you know, that I thought, yes, that's so true. There's such a gap. So Madonna, while they are going through those changes pre-menstruation and some of those mood swings and door slamming, and we're seeing that in younger girls, I think parents, uh, on the one hand, we want them to learn to express themselves. And on the other hand, we want them to learn to manage their emotions and like learn to to calm down. How do we find that balance, do you think? I think by listening to them and being consistent. Self-regulation of their emotions is one of the key indicators of success. So we've got to teach our girls not to cry at the drop of a hat, to try and resolve problems. And that's important. But put that aside, there's going to be a little bit of that in the development, in their development. I think if we're consistent so that they know that we're not going to be angry or we're going to be understanding, but we're not going to accept bad behaviour and it's consistent, they then know what to expect. I'm teaching my 16-year-old to drive at the moment and it's no different, Cass, and I'm hopeless at it because, you know, I'm sitting there hanging onto the side of the car going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. She's not learning anything, you know, and I know I'm doing, I know I'm doing it wrong. And I think it's exactly the same that if we're, we're the adult and we know as mums especially what they're going through and to go through that at 10 when some of your friends and you're developing and your breasts are a little bit there and, you, and your mother's saying you better wear this bra and then other kids are laughing at you because you're wearing a bra or because you're not wearing a bra, I think... You add that to how they're feeling, that insecurity and who they want to be and why they don't look like someone else. And I don't think they mean to walk in and slam the door. I think they want more privacy. I think they're a little bit nervous about dad in a sense. Often the girl will step back from her dad at about that time. But I would say if we continue to listen and we are very consistent in what we accept and we don't accept, then it provides the barometer of how much they can push us. 
And you also gave some good examples in the book of some strategies. I think that's, you know, giving them strategies to regulate their emotions. You mentioned music. Yeah, how good was music? Yeah, so all this research shows that music is a really good thing for girls to learn a whole lot of stuff. For example, even the idea of timetabling or that part of the brain that allows them to organise. And I spoke to several experts who say that music in middle school and even into high school, so even if you've got a 14 or 15-year-old, them actually learning a musical instrument can help them in a whole lot of other ways, from self-regulation to planning to organisation and all of that. In many ways, self-regulation comes down to a lot of things too, and some of those are environmental. Some of those are, you know, what kind of life the girls have had. If you look even at when a girl reaches puberty, that can be years difference. And some of the factors are environmental factors, um, whether one interesting fact I found is that girls from foster children can come to puberty years before others. And I spoke to the head of a state foster care association. He's fostered 150 children over 28 years. And he says he sees at nine what everyone else sees at 13 and 14. It's almost like the girls are impelled to grow up more quickly. So everything from maternal depression to the environment to a whole lot of things help that. A couple of things that stood out to me was teachers, and I spoke to 100 teachers, overridingly they say parents who mollycoddle their children impact on their self-regulation and their resilience. Overwhelmingly, people told me that kids from country areas were often more resilient because they'd seen animals live and die. They'd seen their parents worry about drought and floods, big picture, not little picture. And as evidence of that, sometimes you see kids from rural areas become less resilient when they move to boarding school in the city. Um, Kids who have spent time in a cancer ward will often be a lot more resilient. And it's almost like they get a perspective on life that, you know, privileged children or or not even privileged children, hopefully most children never have to encounter. It's so challenging, isn't it? Because we are this generation where, you know, like my mother's generation, yours as well, you know, my grandmother, it was children were seen and not heard. And now children are kind of front and centre and we want to give them the best and we want to give them every opportunity, we want to give them a voice and they listen to their opinion and... And then where do you find the balance between molly coddling them and raising these entitled brats? Well, and you say about opinions, you know, especially I, I learned in doing being 14 first, but it's relevant here too, is, is we send our children to school and we want them, especially girls, to stand up for themselves and to give their opinion and, and to be able to argue their case with conviction and clarity. Then they come home and they say, you know, I think we should have more refugees, Dad, or, or you know, I think we should remain a monarchy or... Um, I think I'm gay at 11 and all of a sudden we go, hold on, hold on, hold on. And we never agreed with our parents on everything and I really think it's important for us to disagree with their argument if we like but not to take them on personally because they may have only decided their opinion at lunchtime. They may actually even be baiting us and that not their opinion. 
But on that mollycoddling, another factor there people explain to me is when we grew up, I had four brothers. So families were kind of horizontal and grandparents, you went and visited and they said hello and it was lovely. Now it's vertical. Grandparents have a much bigger role. Lots of schools, they actually pay the school fees, not mum and dad, I found out. And often parents have one or two children and they're at every um, soccer match or every netball match. They're at every piano presentation. And so, so they're so invested in them that we feel as though we're ruining them if we don't give them every opportunity to be that Olympian or to, or to be in the, you know, New York Philharmonic Orchestra. And, I'm, you know, one, one principal told me this story. As COVID came down, she sent a note saying, look, we're having our musical, but we'll send you a link. Obviously, people can't be there in person. Parents snuck in under the cover of darkness to watch their child on a stage in pitch black. And when questioned, they said that they worried it would impact on their daughter's anxiety unless they were there. Now, your mother never did that. You know, this idea of fighting over every half mark and going up and saying, look, this girl was school captain. Can you just give me the criteria, you know, so I can check it against mine because I thought mine was going to. I remember being in a tennis, well, it wasn't even a final, probably, you know, um, a quarterfinal or something once at about 12. And I said to mum, are you coming to watch me? And she said, no. And with four brothers, it wasn't, she didn't even think she would be coming and watching me. But I'm not too impacted for life. And I know that sounds harsh because we want the best for our kids, but on every piece of advice I got is by helping them too much in the short term, we're not helping them in the long term. And that's really a lesson for us as parents, I think. I think we all need to remind ourselves of that. Yeah, all of us. Yeah. yeah, 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 yes. Madonna, we talked about that age of 10 and onwards, that kind of pre-pubescent age where they're forming their own identity. And as you said, they're looking outwards and they're working out who they want to be and what they want to be like. And now also, as you said, they've got this whole influencer culture, this whole celebrity culture, and we can't take that away. That's not changing. That's not going anywhere how do we be supportive and, or I don't know, how do we help to sh- them to shape who they want to be and make sure they've got those positive role models while they're making these kind of decisions about who they want to be and how they want to be in the world? Yeah, so mine are teens now. If I had an eight or nine or a 10-year-old now, I would actually physically draw up a list of people who I thought would be good examples for them. And it may be a cousin in another country town that they could contact three times a year. It's not someone they've got to be mentored with every day, but I think the antidote for the influencer industry is earthy men and women who are really genuine, authentic, and who are cool for what they do, not what they look like. And I interviewed Inspector John Rouse, who runs those investigations into pedophile networks. And we're talking about all these influencers. The influencer market went from um, 1.7 billion four years ago to 10 billion last year. And he's saying, who the hell are these people? This is not what you call a role model. And so it might be a teacher, a coach, The girls often said a big sister. While they argued with them, they knew their big sister would help them. Granddad is gold. You know why? He doesn't judge me. 
They all wow. say, whereas mum and dad judge, granddad never does apparently. Um, so, you know, aunts, uncles, a neighbour, you know, your best friend is a fantastic mentor for your daughter. And I think we've got to not, then not judge our daughter when she wants to talk to them. And I know that can be hard because if my daughter came to me and said, look, I want to speak to my auntie about something and I don't want to tell you what it is, it's like, ouch. But our goal is to grow them so they graduate as 18-year-olds as these beautiful adults who are curious and safe and kind and, and, and that's the person we want. And the more mentors or influences they have that they can see in real life and talk to and contact is best and every expert said that is the best antidote to the influencer they're seeing on their phone. And they want to be influencers, some of them too. Like that's a legitimate kind of career option for a lot of them now. And I think, you know, that's the world we live in too, isn't it? Like they say, I want to be a, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a YouTuber. I want to be an influencer. But to do that, they've got to understand people's behaviour and that's not by living online. So good on them. And some of our children will grow up to be massive influencers and hopefully for the good because you can influence in a whole lot of good areas as well as bad. I'm not against technology. I think it is the most wonderful invention. You may not be old enough, but I remember doing primary school assignments with an Encyclopedia Britannica, which was next to useless. So I think the ability that they have been granted through technology is wonderful. It's not going away. Our job is to teach them how to use it. And when it becomes our fault, if you like, is if we don't know how to use it, we don't give the kids the key to a car and say, take it for a run and tell us what you need to know. So this idea that we hand them a phone and say, all right, you can go on Instagram now, go and do it. You know, we need to do it too. And one dad said to me at this parent night, but who do I talk to on Instagram? You don't have to talk to anyone. You just have to know how to do it and how your daughter is doing it. The parameters that she can operate in, I guess. Are 10-year-olds on Instagram? Oh, yeah. So of the 1,600 mums that are, whose counsel I saw, half of them said their children had a smartphone and a hell of a lot of them had Instagram. I was quite surprised. Instagram and TikTok are the most common social platforms that our 10-year-olds are on. Many had House Party and Snapchat and a whole lot of others, but I do think there was an almighty jump in the first six months of last year because parents saw it as a way of connecting during COVID. As you say, we'll be seeing the flow-on effects from COVID for a while. I think so. I think so. Confidence and self-esteem really takes a nosedive. I know I remember my daughter and her friends, it, it is that time where they start dropping out of sport or dance or ballet. Partly they lose interest. I think partly they just don't want to be out in a leotard or a crop top because they start getting body conscious. Any advice about that? <laughs> yeah, so I didn't realise this, but teachers explained to me how girls this age are double togging. They're wearing two swimsuits wow. for swimming lessons. Um, I spoke to several girls who said, oh, I used to dance when I was nine, but now I'm 10, I don't. Because all of a sudden you can see little buds or you feel as though you're fat, you know. And, and someone explained it to me as, you know, 
When you're seven or eight, our kids grab the karaoke at a family barbecue or they're diving into a pool and what are they yelling? Mum, mum, look Look at at me. me. Dad, watch my somersault. Then all of a sudden it just stops. And what that is is that sphere of influence going from internal, where the family is their world, to external. And mum and dad's judgment is always lovely. The judgment of their peers is often much harsher. And to me, that's when you need that antidote of other mentors who think what they're doing is good or acknowledge the work they're being put being put into something. People say, oh, you know, it's easy, you know, um, they've just got to find their passion. I don't subscribe to that. I think lots of girls find it really hard to know what their passion is. That will come eventually. But what they've got to do is realise that Achievement brings competency and competency gives them self-confidence. So if they learn to do something, that is something really worthwhile, no matter how hard it is. And in building resilience, there's two schools of thought. One say, you know, if they learn empathy and kindness, that will really help them. I'm not sure that's true. It may help. A whole lot of school principals told me that It's by service opportunities. So them doing this, them going to an old person's home and talking to them on a Tuesday afternoon as part of a school program or them lining up to actually help serve the homeless or even doing the groceries for the lady next door and talking over the fence. It's a sense of, I can do this. I'm I'm grown up. I can help someone. And with that, Principles say they look outwards, not inwards, and they're looking at other people, not themselves, and that then creates a self-confidence. And in everything I saw with girls, I think that's spot on. I found it interesting too what you said about that the identity formation and how the cues they pick up from even family very young about who they are and, you know, like, oh, she's the funny one and she's the sport. I mean, I work with adults who are still carrying these stories and these limitations about what they're capable of and who they are and what they can do that they've picked up so early from those family messages. Yeah, one example for your listeners is perhaps um, how we label our children in friendship. So parents said to me, mum said to me, oh, mine's the messenger. Oh, I hope mine's not a mean girl. Or mine's the boss in the group. Or mine's a goody two-shoes. All these labels. And this psychologist said to me, and this makes sense, that girls lean into those labels. So when I spoke to girls about their role in the friendship group, they could describe their role in those terms. I'm the shy one, or I'm in charge, or, you know, I carry a note between groups. They could actually describe themselves in terms of a role, not as a friend. And I think we should be quite careful. We've learned over the years not to say things or not to label people in greater community. I think that needs to be brought into the playground. So kids are kids. They're not, you know, necessarily she's the clever one, she's the sporty one. What does this make that one? She just feels, especially then at the age of 14, that she's a nobody. She's stuck in the middle of of nothing. And I think girls have to learn that they're enough boys perhaps too, but, you know, they are bright and clever and inquisitive and they can be the person they can be without having to be the best at maths or the best at this. I think that's massively overrated. 
I was just thinking back to the body confidence issue, which is obviously massive. It's always has been uh, with girls and the feedback that they give to each other. And I, I know that, you know, my daughter is obviously she's 14. So, but even when she was younger, I think when you see what a girl, when, when you see what they post on Instagram, I think you mentioned this in the book too, the compliments that come through, which are all about, oh my God, you're so pretty. You're so cute. I love your outfit. You're so hot. You're the, this. I wish I looked like you. It's so appearance-based still. Absolutely. But if you're 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 and that's what you're seeing, you can see how that then builds you. And so if everyone's saying you're pretty or that dress makes you look hot, or you can see how they gain confidence in that. So when those messages don't come mm. or no one's saying you're pretty, the impact then of that is phenomenal. You know, and I think, I think that's pretty harsh. And, and, and they also want that response immediately. There's no... Instant gratification at one school, they told me how they're taking anxious girls out of class and trying to teach them to breathe. And they're saying, breathe one, two, three, and out. If girls can't master that in two minutes, they start to panic that they've failed breathing. For God's sake. And, uh, but, but, but that's the world we're going. We now book a holiday on, on Instagram. We swap a lounge. We get someone to come and fix the pool or whatever. We now no longer wait for anything. Mm. And you and I as kids had to. And there's a sense of achievement in actually waiting. That sense whether it's to get photos developed or to understand a particular maths problem. And if you don't have that quality that is to wait and to have patience, I think it's very hard then to see yourself as successful always. Mm, That's a good tip. Finding opportunities for them to have to wait, making them delay gratification. Well, the perfect one, and I did it in being 14, is get a camera and say, or just say to a 14-year-old girl, how do you take, how do you think I took a picture at your age? And you see them go, well, with the cat, with a phone. No, I didn't have a phone. What did we have? We had to, first of all, get a camera. We had to actually do the lens because it wasn't automatically focusing. Then we took a picture and we had to put it away for 23 other pictures or 35 before we could even get it developed, which they have no understanding what that is. We'd open the door of the camera and my favourite line is, and then you take it to the pharmacy. And girls are looking at you like, was it sick? But we had to wait at least a week often, well, in Dolby we did, to go back and collect them. But we went back with two things. One, money, because you had to pay for the photographs. But the other thing was this enormous sense of of what it meant, of expectation. And I think that's been robbed from our children. It's been stolen from them. We've got to find a way of granting that anticipation, that waiting back to them so that they can have that terrific feel of going through and not even remember that photo being taken. And and when I look through my photo album now, it's those silly ones of red eyes when you've got a funny smile and, you know, it's a candid photo that is so precious. There are no candid photos now. You know, it's pouted, there's a pout on the face and the perfect outfit and the perfect hair. And, you know, that's kind of sad, isn't it, Cass? It is, but I've been really pleased to see, it's interesting you bring this up, this film cameras have become cool again. Yep. 
And disposable cameras. My daughter had a birthday party and somebody handed me a disposable camera to take a photo and she started to explain to me how to use it. And I was saying, you understand, don't you, that this was all I had for most of my life. She's like, you've got to wind that to wind the film. Yes, I understand. Yes. Yeah, but do they think, why do they like it? I've noticed this trend and I think it's delightful, but is it because it's quaint? Yeah. Is it because, I, I, yeah, they're still taking pictures on their mobile phone. Maybe a bit vintage, a bit like vintage dress and, yeah. Turntables, yeah, records, final records are back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I said it to my parents, I said, oh, she got a film camera for Christmas. You know, she's really happy about it. I think it's great. And for those reasons that you just said, that delayed gratification and, and my dad said, what? That's a ridiculous idea. It used to cost us $700 to process the, the photo, the films from the holiday. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, that is something in, in terms of disruption and we've all had to face disruption all industries. I thought that when my daughter got some developed because they made her pay for them when none of them turned out. And I thought you can see, well, that's just not right, is it? You know, and uh, so that I think that industry has to probably come up with a model where if they want to sell cameras, old-style cameras, they've got to be able to do it for a price where children are are happy to get them developed. Madonna, having spoken to all of those 10-year-old girls and got inside their heads, what, what is it that they want us to know? We as parents, what do we need to know about our 10 year olds Yeah, so I think they want to talk to mum. And this sounds a bit sexist, but the most common places was cooking together, going to a movie together, shopping together, but talking. And mum doing the listening and them doing the talking with dad. And I asked them this specific question, what do you want more from mum? What do you want more from dad? Dad, it's doing stuff. So whether it's a bike ride or a walk or jumping in the pool, so many 10-year-olds are so excited that dad has been home more often in the last year during COVID. They're probably more harsh on their mum in many ways. But that, and that's a lovely silver lining in the cloud of COVID. I hope it remains because that connection between dad and daughter is gold. So dad doing more, mum listening more, and, and they won't ask us. They won't tell us that's what they want. But there is no doubt, even when they're rolling their eyes and they're slamming their door and they're walking away from us, they want us to listen to them. Give them a hug and say that we understand or we're listening. Thank you so much for the work that you have put in and the conversations that you've had to put this book together. It is a real gem and I know that so many parents are going to be thrilled to get their hands on a copy. Thanks, Cass, because at the end of the day, we're all in it together, aren't we? We're just trying to bring up these beautiful girls to be the best that they can possibly be. So I, I hope it helps. There is no doubt that kids today are living in a whole different world from the one that we grew up in, even if you are a younger parent. And just when we thought we were getting a handle on managing technology and social media, our kids were faced with carrying on their education, their friendships and all of their activities during a global pandemic. So Madonna's book, Teenager, is full of really solid wisdom, practical advice. And if, like me, your daughter is a little older now, then I would also really recommend that you grab a copy of her last book, Being 14. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And I also love reading your messages, so shoot me a DM over on Instagram. I'm castdunn underscore XO, where you can email me at hello at castdunn.com. 
Crappy to Happy is a Podcast One Australia production produced by Dave Zbolenski and with audio by Darcy Thompson. For more great podcasts, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the app.